Podcast of the cinema, and we're back. Hey, where where were we? Uh, I had some deadlines at the end of February, but they're done now. They're done now. We're back. You got you got your book project accomplished. Yes, it's a it's a it, it was it, a four hire situation. It was situation. a four hire gig. You will not see my name on this book. Yeah, but so don't don't go out hunting for it until it comes out, and then you might want to buy it anyway, but. You know, you were I, you were essentially an organizer, transcriber, yeah, helper, putter I, together. I was the steno pool on this book, basically. <laughs> but uh, but it's a good one. I think but it you'll was enjoy a quick it. job. They wanted a fast turnaround. You yes. had to have it done by the end of February. You got it done by the end of February. Yes. And in the meantime, we took a hiatus, a, a two week uh, little stop. Yeah, from this podcast. Yes. We kept on doing the Patreon shows. The Patreons. Although, I tell you something, February being short is a drag uh, <laughs> because, boom, here comes the 28th, and we haven't done our Linoleum Knife Presents More Linoleum Knife yes. episodes yet for the Patreon folks. So we got to do um, like four so, this month. Yeah, we're. <laughs> I think we're just going to do like one a week in March until we. Uh, get ourselves back on track for that sure because you know everybody gets at least two a month of those more episodes yes uh, patreon.com slash linoleum knife. yeah and um so yeah okay before we begin did you talk about where we're from who we are what we do i uh, know you're dave white i'm alonzo duraldi yeah. we are film critics at the rap i host some other podcasts and you and i are married to each other yes and I'm pulling up. Uh, that is that is the previously on Homeland that you need for this show. Yeah. Um, so do you remember? This was in 2020. I think it was 2020. The whole year is a blur I'm to me. I'm pretty sure it was 2020. Try me. We reviewed a documentary called Autolenghi and the Cakes of Versailles. Yes. All right. And, I, and Dan and I uh, interviewed the director on uh, a film and a movie. Oh, yeah. I remember Before that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yotam Autolenghi is a, uh, uh, a famous chef. He's in London. He uh, organized an event. I think it was at the Met. In fact, it was at the Met in New York. Uh and it was a, a, a an event that involved baker slash artists who made insane creations, you know, cakes and jellies and all sorts of things. Uh, the, the gelatin dudes are the bumpus and par. Yes, and they make wild, wild things. Um, but also the cakes were nuts. As well, meant to capture the sort of grandeur and 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 wild um, 
extravagance of Versailles. Yeah. Court life at Versailles. One of the creators, one of the artists slash bakers, uh, a woman named Dinara Casco. And I have been following her on Instagram ever since watching that documentary because she uh, makes cakes that I will never, as a, you know, medium proficiency home baker uh, who loves to bake cakes, I will never in my life be able to accomplish what she accomplishes with cake. She develops her own silicone molds mm-hmm. in wild shapes that you would never expect to uh, house a cake. Right. And then not only does she make cakes in them that have multiple layers of stuff, but she also, like, decorates them in in these wild ways. You know the kind of spraying decorate. You know that stuff like airbrush. Yeah, it looks like airbrushed stuff, and but 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 not like the kind you'd get at the grocery store bakery airbrushed. Right. Like, uh, impeccable art. So I've been following her for going on two years now. She uh, is Ukrainian, and up until last week, all of her Instagram posts were like, here's this cake, check me out, you know. Mm -hmm. You can buy the cake molds that she uses online, like she's got a whole studio, business, everything. And um, the minute the invasion happened, my first thought was, oh cake lady like what's how's she doing what's happening and it took it was all of an hour before I learned because she posted um you know she and her husband and kids are like in a shelter somewhere and the posts are devastating and heartbreaking and frightening because I can't tell if they have left and are in a shelter somewhere else or if they are still in the city. Kiev? Or, and just, uh, I think she lives in Kiev. I think she's from Kharkov. Okay. That's her home. I, I'm probably saying all these things wrong. Um, both cities have been bombed and attacked. Um, and it has been my news because everything else that I'm reading I feel like I have to go triple check sure to find out like is what you just said right did that just happen and suddenly you know suddenly everyone on Twitter has uh, foreign policy experience yes and they all know what should happen and who's doing what and why it's going on and everything and I and I am a complete dummy and I don't know anything about geopolitics um, but I have in my life worked with, uh, refugee children because I was an English as a second language teacher in Texas mm-hmm. and we had kids and, and I worked at a special school that was just for first year English students who came from other countries. It was a public school. Mm-hmm. 
but you know if you came through uh if you came through that you know process you were you came to our school right and this was the 90s so we had kids from Iraq we had kids from Bosnia Bosnia we had kids from the Sudan we had uh uh kids from South America. We had a lot of kids from Vietnam and Mexico. Um, and a good chunk of those kids were war refugees. Uh, what that is, that is my only experience. And so, um, this just brings back all those memories of working with kids who showed up. I remember like on their first week, just looking bewildered. You know, like what they had been through and where they are. You know, suddenly, finally, they're in a place that's safe. Right. Um, it's it it we we ranted about this on linoleum nights on Sunday, where I just felt like I just, you know, this is so absolutely helpless feeling and and the depression that you feel when you watch something that you can't control and you have no way to help other than monetarily, which, by the way, uh, go to our Patreon page because I made a public post hmm. of everything, every like a bunch of a bunch of places you can do to provide meaningful help to people. Um, mostly it's financial. You know, if you have five bucks, donate it to the International Rescue Committee or the Red Cross, UNICEF, World Kitchen, UNICEF, yeah. Um, what was Thank that? you. A package. Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, it said it didn't sound like a knock of a delivery. It sounded like a someone wanting to talk to us. <laughs> anyway, um, so all of that with uh, Shadi emailed us. And said, doesn't it make you feel doing your job? Doesn't it make you feel like a phony? You know? Um, And I thought, no. (laughs) I mean, it, it makes my job feel insignificant. Sure. In the moment. You know, it makes my job feel like a stupid little job. Right. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna review a movie right now. I'm gonna review a television show right now. I'm gonna talk about recipes on the food podcast we do. You know, I, it makes it makes everything feel very small. Yeah. Which I frankly generally feel about what I do for a living because I'm no first responder. You know. I'm right. Not... But that would be everybody's job who isn't in the line of fire helping other people in sure. a direct way. Yes. Your job suddenly feels very insignificant and it makes you feel like, well, what am I what am I doing and what can I do? And sometimes the answer is you what you can do is send somebody twenty bucks. Yeah. Um, or at least like take that information and share it on social media yeah. to, to people you know who, who can spare twenty bucks if you right. can. Yeah. Right. Um, but I was talking with a friend and then I was talking with you about this. And he said, was your anxiety about this is not the same as activism, right? You know, save that. Sure. Save all the bad feelings that you're feeling watching the news and 
use that to do whatever you can possibly do. You know. So that that's that. Yeah, about that. Um, we're going to do our dumb job. Let's now. do our stupid little job. <laughs> Why don't we talk about some uh, uh, stupid little movies? I'll start. Okay. With the week's stupidest little movie. Let's get the let's get the bad. Uh, let's get the worst film out of the way. Okay. You didn't even see it. Oh yeah, I did not. You haven't even watched it. Nope. Nor will I at during, this point. <laughs> during your uh, book time, you said to me, oh, hey, would you like to be a very helpful husband? I said, yes, of course, always. In addition to vacuuming and cooking. <laughs> what else can I do? Putting away the laundry. You? Yes, what else can I, how else can I help you today? <laughs> how can I make your life better today? You said, would you go on Breakfast All Day on the video on YouTube and talk to Christy Lemire about cinema? I said, no. You said, please. I said, I hate being on camera. You said, pretty please. I said, okay, fine. Because <laughs> it takes, sometimes it does take a pretty please. Yeah. Um, I didn't have to go to Sugar on Top, and I was will- I was willing to go there yes. if I needed to. Um. Boy, do I not like being on camera. Like, and I, I become so aware of my tics. Not just verbal, mm-hmm. which are, you know. Legion. Not, yeah. <laughs> but. And I say that because I have them too. But I have a squinting and blinking situation and I'm <laughs> drawing attention to it right now. So everyone's going to notice it. <laughs> And I was trying my very best with Christy. Uh, where I had to take off my glasses because they were glaring into the screen. Right. Why yours don't is because beyond me. Mine have a coating and oh, okay. yours Mine are, are just mail order. Magnifying readers, yeah. Well, they might just be readers, but they are necessary. Yeah, I get it. Next, uh, next time I go in for my annual checkup, I'm going to say, hey. <laughs> What if you um, made me an appointment with, like, oh, say, I don't know, an ophthalmologist or optometrist or something? Because I'm, everything is, everything is too far away and, or too close. Right um, our great insurance doesn't include that stuff. So what? I know. Thanks, Kaiser Permanente. Yeah. Permanent nothing. Exactly. Permanent uh, no thanks. Um, the, uh. What was I going to say? Squinting oh, yeah. So I, I could see myself very clearly on the on the mic, uh-huh. on, the, on the camera. And I thought to myself, don't do the thing you see yourself doing all the time, which is blink, blink, squint, blink, <laughs> squint, squint, blink, blink. Like, you know who did this? You know who also had this physical tick? Who? My father. Um... And I grew up watching him and going, thinking to myself, he does a lot of squinting and like more blinking than a normal person. And you don't do it when you're not on camera. I think I think you just I think I think I do. I I, I think you just, I think you're just used to it. Maybe, but I don't yeah. I don't think you I, I don't know, maybe I'm just used to the it. The first <laughs> time I ever noticed myself doing it was that horrific time that I was on MSNBC. Yes. My fir- very first time ever on an actual television uh, 
and my la- my also my last. Well, that was partially on them. They should have told you, like, pick a, a direction to look in and look in that direction <laughs> the entire never. time. Listen, no one ever asks me to do this stuff, but yeah. I will never say yes again. I mean, I've I've gotten you're be- a pro. I've gotten better uh, at no, it over the are. years. Yeah, I'm not like you're the king of. I'm this not stuff. Ben Mankiewicz. You know, I'm okay. All right. Well, you're no, because he's Mr. Smooth. Who, who, <laughs> who among us is who, Ben? Who, who among us is Ben? <laughs> um, but I've I've watched you on, I've seen you on Turner Classic Movies yourself, and you're a delight. Oh well, that's you're fine. Sweet. Oh, you're fine. Oh, fine. <laughs> so I said yes. And then I really was super conscientious about, don't be Mr. Squinty Blinky. All right. I think I succeeded. I did watch the videos when they were done. There were four of them. Mm-hmm. There was the news yes. that we did, uh, where she just threw out topics and I, you know, said amusing things about it all. That's what I do every week. <laughs> uh, then we reviewed Cyrano... And Medea. Medea. And the film you're about to talk and about. And Studio 666, which is the film I'm about to talk about. Which sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I loved the thing that she says at the beginning. She goes, You know, aren't you a Foo Fighters fan, Dave? And I said, No. <laughs> no, darling. <laughs> what? I, people make the mistake that because I like, um, you know, to rock. You are, as we record this, wearing a, what t-shirt is that? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's irrelevant. There are skeletons. <laughs> and they're holding weapons. Well, one is a demon. Okay, but there's a lot of skeletons. Well, the skeletons of the dead that the demon ah, killed. Okay. All right. Listen. So you can see why people might think. That you would really love the Foo Fighters. <laughs> I like Doom Metal and I like Kylie Minogue, and that's it. <laughs> Foo Fighters are neither heavy nor brutal enough for me. Right. They're nor f- do they feature Lolita Holloway. They're okay. Listen, very few things feature Lolita Holloway or St. Martha Wash. Mm. The Foo Fighters are okay. Like, if you like the Foo Fighters, go in peace. No one's mad at you. Enjoy the Foo Fighters. I don't hate the Foo Fighters. I just don't feel anything for the Foo Fighters. I I saw two members of the Foo Fighters in 1993 when it was Nirvana uh, performing. In Dallas, Dave Grohl, yes, and touring guitarist Pat Smear, hmm. legendary of the Germs, yes. All right, Foo Fighters made a horror movie. You guys, it's currently in movie theaters. I suppose you could go see it if you wanted to. It's about the Foo Fighters as themselves, and they move into a. Uh, 
a haunted house. Very much like Abbott and Costello <laughs> and Francis the Talking Mule. Or any number of like Sid and Marty Croft creations. Yes. This seems like a Captain Cool and the Kongs episode. <laughs> you will have to Google Captain Cool and the Kongs if you are under 50 years old. Yes. And spell it with K's. It's all spelled with a K. I, uh... Not, that's, I did not mean to begin that sentence with the word I. The Foo Fighters uh, move into a house to record an album because this house has great sound quality for recording the kind of music that the Foo Fighters make. They are sent there by their, their manager, uh, Jeff Garland, who's the funniest thing in the movie. Uh, also the other funniest person in the movie is the other person who sends them there, Leslie Grossman. Hmm. She plays the real estate lady. Hmm. In this horror comedy, the two people who have comedy experience, two of the three people who have comedy say, experience. Well, four, right? Whitney Cummings is in the film too, and so is, uh, Will Forte, Will Forte but neither one of them is all that funny. Gotcha. Uh, they go there. The Foo Fighters go there, they begin recording an album, and people start getting murdered. Uh, this is not a spoiler because it's part of the trailer. It is clear that Dave Grohl has become possessed by the spirit of bleh, whatever is in the house. <laughs> and the thing that is now inside him needs to kill and also to cannibalize. And they trick you. Because the movie starts with a... a a really brutal, slaughtery murder scene. Like, And you were like, oh, this movie might be for me after all. Yeah. Like, two minutes in, I'm thinking, hey, this is gnarly. Like, this could be all right. Furthermore, nice practical effect. Hmm. It's no, no CGI blood. This is, you know, squirty squirt hmm. everywhere. The filmmaker, whose name I continue to blank on, uh, uh, he made Hatchet 3. DJ McDonald? And those Hatchet movies are fun. None of them are scary, but they're fun because they have uh, gory, gore, practical effects. And I like that. I like it when people take the time and the effort and the invention. They, they, they provide the invention necessary to make something look... Uh, uh, you know, as fake as a practical effect always looks, mm -hmm. but also, you know. Acknowledging. Yeah, acknowledging that that is the history of cinema and <laughs> and that uh, it's just cooler. Someone took the time and effort and really cared to make this obviously fake thing look as disgusting as possible. <laughs> uh, B.J. McDonald is the director. He did the third Hatchet movie. Yes. After that first murder, you have to wait a while for another murder. Uh, and the murders are not bad. Like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna recommend this to anybody, it is in the context of wait until it is streaming or on DVD, and then fast forward to the murder parts so you can see all the fun practical effects. I cannot dismiss those because they are cool. 
There's a great one where people are chainsawed in half. Uh, lengthwise, that's fun. Mm. Lots of stabbings. You know. Some fun body parts getting thrown around. Fake eaten by Dave Grohl. But there's nothing funny. There's nothing scary. And the script is limp. Hmm. Uh, And the Foo Fighters are not actors, (laughs) nor are they funny. Hmm. Take that back. Pat Smear is funny, and here's why. Pat Smear is, in every scene, smirking. Like, he can't believe that someone said, hey, why don't you guys make a movie? He is refusing to try. Oh, I don't know that he could if he wanted to. And I think he knows that he's out of right his place there. So he just seems to be, like, not looking directly into the camera, but gesturing in a way that suggests we have no business <laughs> being in a movie. Like, he has some words to say. Right. And he says them. And then it's like he sort of, like, Pee Wee Herman shuffles out of the, <laughs> out of the shot. <laughs> Not really, but yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the, 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 the overall at, effect. That's the atmosphere <laughs> of Pat Smear in this film. It's just tedious and terrible and bad. Uh, they eat a lot of Doritos, though. You know, who doesn't love those? Like, is it just a product placement, or is it the kind of product placement that they take so far that it becomes a It's a Josie a and the joke. Pussycats level product okay. placement, but it's not a joke. Oh, it's just there. I gotcha. They just are all loving the Doritos. Hmm. Okay. No, if it had been, um, if that element of it had been really amped up mm-hmm. in the Josie and the Pussycats style, sure, I would have said, okay, you know, nice ripping off Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> like if by be, the end of the movie, as you were, they performed whatever the last Foo Fighters number, all dressed as giant bags of Cool Ranch. Yeah, yeah. Why not? It is not a good film. Oh, well. And I'll say this. If you love the Foo Fighters, <laughs> you ain't getting any Foo Fighters music in it. Interesting. Very little. There's little snips here and there, snippets here and there. So it's a disappointment for everyone, no matter whether you <laughs> like them or don't like them. If you like horror, if you like Foo Fighters, you will be equally disappointed. If you like, uh, you know, practical gore effects... There are a few. There are some. Of, there are some. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it's not a, you know, it's not a slaughter fest mm. like you want it to be. I expect, listen. You want to put down the Gallagher If charts. you put 666 in your title, <laughs> first of all, go take a nap. Because <laughs> you were tired, clearly. But bring me some yeah. mayhem Steve. in the form of like disembowelments or whatever. Routinely, regularly placed. 
What if it had been Studio 666 live on the Sunset Strip? And Kristen Chenoweth is running around with an axe, <laughs> killing everybody. I'm five feet tall. <laughs> well, it's great that your rock band is possessed, but your brother's in Afghanistan. Exactly. <laughs> People taking long walks down halls, talk, 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 talking. She jumps out of the door. Ha, I killed you now. <laughs> uh... Shall we move up the scale oh, of enjoyment? By all means. Dog. <sighs> Dog. Okay. okay, so Channing Tatum is a, a veteran. Yes. He is home. He has physical and uh, emotional uh, trouble yeah, because of his time. His PTSD. In the, uh, in the military. One of his uh, fellow soldiers was killed in action. And it is his job to bring the guy's dog to the funeral. Right. Channing Tatum uh, is in the Pacific Northwest. Yes. And the funeral is in Nogales, Arizona. Yeah. And he basically gets talked into doing it because... If he can succeed, then he'll his his commanding officer will recommend him to return to combat, which is what he wants. He wants to be redeployed. Um, yeah. But the dog, because it has been so, it, the dog is itself dealing, Trauma, traumatized by yes. its time in in battle, uh, is going to be put down after this funeral because nobody can. They're going to euthanize the dog because apparently that is a thing that happens. I guess, yeah. Um, I don't know enough about the subject. So, you know, it starts out... It's a road trip. It's a road trip and they're at odds, but eventually they come to understand each other and their shared experiences. And Dude and dog. Dude and dog they, bond. They, they bond and they become connected. Yeah. The dog, by the way, it's three dogs. Three dogs. Playing one. Not uncommon. Gorgeous. Yes. Dog. A, a Belgian shepherd. Like, you look at this dog going, oh, so pretty. Mm. <laughs> Who's a good year? <laughs> um, I wouldn't dislike this film. Directed, co-directed by Channing Tatum. Yes. And Reed Carolyn, who wrote the two Magic Mike movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you were saying you would like it more if I felt like there was more on its mind emotionally mm-hmm. than making you feel like you suck if you weren't in the military, yeah, <laughs> and and if you ever uh, protested military involvement in anywhere, anywhere. Yeah. yeah, which is weird for for you know I don't know about Mr. Carolyn, but Channing Tatum never has never served in the military, right? But is very much playing a character who uh, every person that he encounters who is a civilian. Is a jerk. Is a jerk. And and not just a jerk, but an ingrate. And yeah, and doesn't really understand. Right. Um, which I find weird as yeah. a as a 
choice. As a choice. Yeah. Like, are you telling me that no one treats you well ever? And that when people are talking to you and, you know, uh, that all they ever do is condescend to you. Um, I, I have a, I, 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 I don't know if that happens to people. I, it just feel, it felt so odd to watch and, and watch this, you know, uh, complaint enacted over yeah. and over again, particularly in like the first 30 minutes or so where he encounters a variety of, it's like a speed dating montage where <laughs> every single person he's in, he meets is sort of like a typical liberal smug, you know, uh, jerk. Yeah. And of course it's Portland, you know, so it's yeah. like, let's all roll our eyes at that. I, I just found it strange. Like I'm not offended by that because it just felt so false and weird. Well, they, that... even, they even go looking for it. It feel like there's a, there's a moment later on in the film where somebody breaks into his car and steals like his meds and, and other valuables. Right. And, and it's, a, it's a homeless guy. Yeah. Who did they, they use the dogs to track him down and it's a homeless guy. And that homeless guy could just, could be a vet. Like there we is, we don't know there. No, no, what I'm saying, but he's not. But what I'm saying is they could have written that character to be a vet and have this moment where they address the fact that this country does not take good enough care of its returning veterans, that many people who are currently unhoused are veterans of the armed forces. Yeah. And instead they make, they have to turn it around to have him be like a faker so that they can like, you know, crap right. on him for his like stolen valor As or the only reason he broke in was because he wanted that jacket. That jacket, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like... Strange. And again, it's like... like he wanted know, that jacket. Ex- not just any jacket right. to keep himself warm. And so, yeah. it, I don't know, it, it, it's it's like I'm, I'm reminded of like how John Wayne didn't fight in World War II, but boy, did he spend the rest of his life like puffing his chest up and being Mr. Like Avatar for the yeah. for America's strong military forces. Right. I'm like, Channing Tatum, what are you even doing in this movie? I don't <laughs> get it. Um, so I felt like there were a lot of missed opportunities for, uh, you know, reasonable behavior yeah. <laughs> on the part of the characters and genuine I, drama and or genuine drama or you know an exploration of what Channing Tatum went through and what he's going through now other than a sort of uh, comic uh, approach that they take to his character where he's simultaneously laughing it off but but hurting inside but we don't get details. Yeah. Um, like we know he's like, there are meds that he's taking and there are certain things that are sort of triggering to him, but we don't, it, it's all very surface level. Yeah. Um, also the ads for this movie are very like, Oh, Channing Tatum's all frustrated with this cute dog ripping up right. the seats of his truck or whatever. Right. That was, and, a, that was the, my favorite part where the dog rips up the, the truck inside. But like they're, they're, they're clearly selling is like, Oh, it's this adorable family film about a soldier and a dog on a road trip. But like, there's some intense stuff here and there's some like borderline sexy times here. Yeah. Like this is not a movie for kids necessarily. Um, if kids watched it, they wouldn't know really much about it other than, uh, what the dog is doing. I suppose. But there, even there are some moments with the dog where like, it's, you know, muzzled and, and, and upset and, 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 you know, and possibly violent where it's like, 
I don't know. It just it, it felt to me like they were advertising one movie and making another one entirely. In a way, on one level, it kind of reminded me of White Christmas because there's that whole moment in the near the end of the film where they do the "Gee, I wish I was back in the army" mm-hmm. song. It's a film about nostalgia for uh, a good war. Right. Right. In one way, this is a film about, you know, a person who, not necessarily nostalgic for his time in combat, but... That's the only place he feels like he fits. Only place he feels like he fits. But we don't get very deep into that. No. It's interesting to contrast this with another Channing Tatum movie about a returning soldier who does not want to be sent back and is, and that's Stop Loss. Right. The Kimberly Pierce film, yeah. which was made like at the height of the Gulf Wars. Yes. And nobody went to see it because it was a bummer, but it's a really great movie. I'm always very curious about, always very interested in the kind of films that are made about war, either wartime combat itself, wartime. What's happening, you know, at home? Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens after? How we feel about the war that's happening while we make this film, like the films that came out during World War Two. Sure, um, you know the the films, the nostalgic films, like we were talking about White Christmas, that came out after World War Two. Right. Uh, the the war films that happened during Vietnam were very rah rah rah, and the war films that happened after in the 70s, late 70s, were like a reckoning about this. Right. And then, which then Chuck Norris turned around and which then made the them 80s raw, raw again. Yeah. <laughs> and I always find it fascinating how we negotiate how we feel about the war that we fought or the war that we are fighting mm-hmm. through film. Sure. Um, and it, during the, the 2000s, after the United States invaded Iraq. And after 9-11. And after 9-11, the films that came out about war were almost all tense and upsetting and protest films. And nobody went to see them. Right. They were basically about how the Middle East was this you know, this issue we were never going to solve and that the Gulf War stuff was also a thing we were never really going to solve and that Afghanistan wasn't going to turn out any better for us than it did for the Russians. Right. So, I'll be interested in seeing if this is sort of symbolic or, or maybe one of many of a wave of films, you know, where... There is a certain amount of, you know, attention paid to the trauma involved Mm -hmm. in being in combat. But trying to balance it with a, a, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, a patriotic, you know, uh, 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 approval of what happened overall. A lack of questioning about the creation of the war, but an exploration of the damage that it inflicts on the people who fight it. Because that is exactly what this feels like. This feels yeah. like the kind of movie where 
they're acknowledging the fact that it that it it, it is a traumatizing experience, right? And at the same time, it's it's never telling you. And we like it that way. Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's just it, weird. It's it's never critical about the systems that make the war happen in the first place, and it's also never critical of the systems of how we're supposed to be taking care of the people who are dealing with this trauma. Right. You know, a movie like Leave No Trace is being very specific about the shortcomings of the VA and of other social services that are supposed to be making lives better for people who have sacrificed so much of their mind and body in combat. Yeah. And yeah, this movie skirts anything, anything like that. You're right. It's all like, aren't we awesome Yes, we've been messed up by this, but we're going to fix ourselves and each other. Like any 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 growth that he makes over the course of the film is with other veterans. It's yes. never through the government doing anything or the army doing anything or whatever. Or even or even just civilians that he meets. Yeah, doing it. Like like it, it's strictly veterans taking care of each other, and I'm sure veterans do take care of each other. But I think there's a there's a question that should be asked of like why should veterans have to be the only ones taking care of other veterans? Right. It's a frustrating. It's not good enough filmmaking to tackle no. these issues. Not script wise. Not in a sense. Not in a visual sense it's, where it's the, the filmmaking is is establishing mood or tone other than um, oh look at the dog doggy tore up a couch. You know, um, it's a frustrating movie. Uh, there. Yeah. Um, Cyrano is occasionally frustrating, but I liked it more than you. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Explain what it is about. So this is a, an updated uh, version of the the De Rostand, um play. It is still set in period, um, but rather than Cyrano being a gentleman with uh, a, 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 very, a very large nose. Um, Cyrano is Peter Dinklage, um, yes. and so it it, it you know we, we get we get height jokes instead of schnoz jokes. Right. But as always, Cyrano is the greatest fighter and the greatest poet, and potentially the greatest lover. But he feels that you know his physical differences will impede uh, you know his affection for the beautiful Roxanne, played here by Haley Bennett. And so when she says that she has fallen in love with one of the soldiers in his company, uh, who's played by Calvin Harrison Jr., um, he facilitates their relationship by being the earpiece, basically, right. to this guy who is, you know, full of love, but has no turn, no skill at turning a phrase. Um, so, yeah, it's the story that you've seen, you know. And when he tries, he's like, I love you so, so much. <laughs> okay. Um, you tried. <laughs> now, th- this is a musical. It's based on. It was yeah. originally performed on the stage. I didn't know that until we sat down to watch it. <laughs> oh, surprise! Yeah, big surprise. Uh, the music is done by a, a guys who are in a group called the National, who I don't know. I do. Um, and I am not going to go seek them out now that I've had this taste of what they do because <laughs> the songs don't work for me. Um, I, I don't know. I just I found it all kind of. I mean, and, and I'm not, it's not like, oh, give me Rodgers and Hammerstein or give me death. I'm, I, I'm open to a lot of different. Now, Carousel, now that's a that's, story. That's a show. <laughs> I'm open to all different kinds of musical theater, but I, I didn't, this just, I didn't respond to it. I don't know if it was too elliptical or too something, but um, 
And and I didn't really get pulled into the romance, even though I love Peter Dinklage. I'm a huge fan of his. I think he's like super charismatic and yeah. funny. And I'm so thrilled that he's in this movie where he is number one on the call sheet every right. day. You know, yeah. so like I've been wanting somebody to like have more Peter Dinklage vehicles, please. <laughs> But this just didn't do it for me, and I didn't. I didn't get swept up in either the romance or the 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 song and dance of it all. And I just was kind of like, hmm, okay. I think it's a beautiful looking film. Um, I think that Joe Wright has an affinity for period uh, storytelling, where if nothing else, you're going to be enveloped by. The atmosphere. As you say, maybe not the storytelling so much, but uh, exactly. <laughs> but, but, yeah, period, atmosphere for sure. Yes. Um, also, uh, although, you know, he is perhaps not as adept at shooting uh, large scale musical numbers as, say, Steven Spielberg in West Side Story, which, by the way, is now streaming yes, and on HBO Max and Disney Plus. And the wave of response that that has happened since it dropped to streaming from people who would have otherwise normally perhaps been in movie theaters to see it has been I'd say pretty gratifying for people like us who are like it's really good it's really good you should see it you should see it you should yeah. see it. Um also drive my car it dropped on HBO Max today too. It did. He might not be as good as photographing a, uh, you know, a large production number, but there are some really lovely bodies in the frame when the music is happening here. I'm okay. thinking particularly of the garrison uh, of soldiers, the the battle sequence, uh, but also oh. the bakery. <laughs> I oh, really oh, loved yeah. the bakery moment where. People are like, like you can see the flower just swirling in the air as people are twirling around in it. Um, I was thinking of the moment early on in the garrison where the soldiers are sort of Busby Berkeleying. Yes. Um. But yeah, the battlefield sequence yeah. is probably the best one. But what it comes down to, and this is what Christy said when I was on Breakfast All Day, do you like the National? <laughs> Unlike. The Foo Fighters movie, where it <laughs> matters not if you enjoy the Foo Fighters right. or 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 whatever, um, your enjoyment of this musical uh, attached to a story that is very 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 familiar already and has been done many times. If you've ever seen Roxanne, the Steve Martin movie in the eighties, it's the same yeah. story. It this musical comes down to. How do you feel about the national? And how do you feel about what kind of songs they have written for this film? She and I were talking about how often in sort of, you know, classic musicals, even if someone is singing a song, uh, you know, explaining their private feelings mm -hmm. and they're alone doing it. Yeah. And there's no one around and no one's dancing or whatever. It's Pretty big in your face kind of song. Yeah, the it's called they refer to it as the I want number. Okay, part of your world in sure. Little Mermaid, right? It's external. Yeah, big external gestures. These songs lend themselves to and are delivered via uh, 
small, quiet, sort of internal uh, presentations. I'm, as I said to Christy, I was like, it's kind of like someone's just whispering to you the whole time. To me, that's fine. The National are a kind of, you know, Americana meets uh, uh, art rock, Nick Cave kind of, you know, low-key National Public Radio. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with that. Morning becomes eclectic. It's nice. It's nice. It's nice, and it is moody, and it, and it, and it is you know an introspective style of, of music making. Yeah, at least here specifically. I cannot comment on the entire catalog of the National because I don't know the entire catalog of the National. I just know some of their work. The songs here work for me. Because there's a sadness to most of them that I found affecting. And I was, you know, teetering back and forth. Joe Wright is not my favorite filmmaker. Yeah. But there's a moment about two-thirds of the way through where they're on the battlefield. And you've got soldiers singing. You've got the guy from that musical Be More Chill. You've got Glenn Hansard from... Once, and they're all singing a song about. They're writing. They're writing. What, they're are, writing letters home. Most likely, their last letters yeah. home. Yeah, and they're singing a song about how they're probably going to die today. Um, and it's really moving. Uh, I think it's my favorite part of the film. Agreed. Uh, it is more affecting even than the romance between. Roxanne and Cyrano. Yeah. Which often is sort of sidelined for other stuff. Yeah. It, it, it does take a backseat fairly often. So I liked it more than I didn't. Okay. I would say I mostly liked it. And I think it's mostly successful in doing what it wants to do. It looks great. You know, it's fully committed. And it's... Even, I would say, daring in terms of its presentation as a musical because it it wants to do something other than what you're expecting. Yeah, and I admire facets of it, and I, 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 I like a lot of the performances. Um, I, I do like that Battlefield number. But just overall, it didn't connect with me. Uh, the music just didn't. Work. And 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 again, I'm I'm thinking back about like musicals I have liked in recent years, and like you know the last five years is, for example, not like you know uh, there are some big showy songs, but there are also some very sort of like intimately whispered, you know, either solos or duets. And and I, I you know again, I'm I'm not stuck on one kind of musical. I just know that this one didn't do it. I but know. I could, but I get why people Alonzo, would like it if it works. If it works for them, I get why you would like it. I, I know that you want everything to be like the greatest showman. <sighs> Couldn't it just? But you can't always get a film as you know really great as the greatest. Have showman. I shown you the Jenny Nicholson review of the Greatest Showman? No, it's almost as good as her review of Dear Evan Hansen. 
Okay. It's, it's pretty great. <laughs> Greatest show. <laughs> the Automat. Ooh. Is a documentary. Yes, it is. About the Automat. Yes. What is the Automat? <laughs> the Automat was a chain of uh, once very popular restaurants in, in New York New City, City and, and Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yep. Who's telling this story? You are now. Um, where you would go in and give your dollar to the lady. She would give you 20 nickels. And those nickels could be used to purchase sandwiches and soup and entrees and coffee and desserts. And you would put your nickels in the slot and pull open the glass window with the brass rim door and pull out the plate with the thing on it. The sandwich, the pie, the chicken pot pie. Yeah, the baked beans. The cream spinach. The soup. Oh. And uh, and these were like hugely popular, and they were very um, egalitarian. You could, if you didn't have much money, you you could still get food there. But you'd also, you know, Audrey Hepburn might be there. You know, fancy ladies in furs would go to the automat. Because they were was, also not segregated. Yes, they were. They were welcoming to everyone. It, it became kind of a rite of passage for uh, immigrants, especially, in addition to, you know, uh, black people, other people of color who lived in those cities could eat there, and it was, you know, everybody ate there. I I found it fascinating, the description of, have we mentioned that this is a documentary, by the way? Yes, (laughs) we started there. Blanking. Colin Powell talks about going there as a child. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is on camera. Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks, especially. Yeah. they talk about how that wave of immigration from 1880 to 1920 in the United States, um, the people who came, they felt it part of their sort of patriotic, I'm an American now, uh, you know, sense of, of purpose uh, to go to a place like the Autumn. To be out in the world, being an American, doing American yeah. things. Kind of like the guy in Hester Street, the husband mm-hmm. in Hester Street, who's, who is like, I'm a Yankee. You know, right. like that was, he kept saying that. Um, it's funny because, you know, the, this book that I was just working on, uh, one of the chapters, they talk about the first department stores, how they would build them to be like cathedrals. Yeah. You would go in and there would be multiple levels and everything was shiny and gleaming. And it's the same thing with these where you've got this beautiful Art Deco architecture and these, you know, the, 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 the mezzanine where some of the tables were, the dolphin spout that the coffee would come out of. Yeah. You, would, you would put in your five cents and turn the crank and out would come coffee and a little milk from the dolphin spout. The tables were marble. There was like brass everywhere. And so it felt like for a reasonable amount of money, you were participating in this really sort of gorgeous facet of public life. Yeah. Uh, And then uh, in the 50s and 60s, things started to take a downturn because suburbs started popping up and people started moving uh, out of the cities, right? They, and, they did. They lost like their weekend trade and even their breakfast yeah. and dinner trade. And so, uh, so by the time the eighties rolled around, everything had been greatly diminished, and eventually they all closed. Yeah, there was one left that closed in the early nineties. This is a mostly, I'd say, successful documentary about people who were there experiencing sort of, you know, fond memories of the thing they they did. Uh, and it's also for 
people, I guess like you and me, who did not live in either of those cities and who have only ever experienced such a thing uh, in movies at the Topanga Canyon Mall. Oh, well, yeah, there was that. <laughs> where, where for at least a little while, and I don't know if it's still open, where you could go in, order your food on a touch screen, and then eventually the window would glow. And have your name and you on would, it. And have your name on it, and you would open the window and get your, I think it was like vegan food, right? Yeah. Um, and I even forget the name of the place. It did teach me the word, it's not in the film, but I went and looked it up afterwards, Animoya. Yeah. Which is nostalgia for a period that you weren't around for. Yeah. Because, yeah, people, it, like one of the guys that they interview in the film is somebody who did his PhD in like food service or whatever uh-huh. and focused on the automat. And he said one of the great things about it is that when you would ask people who used to go to them about the automat, their eyes would just light up. Right. And they would just it was have special. such fond memories of it. And, and the people they talked to, I mean, like, Ruth Bader Ginsburg just talks about like, you know, on the days that she would go take her piano lesson, she would go to the automat afterwards and sit at a table by herself and do her homework. And, you know, Mel Brooks, just like a, a fountain of like yeah. things about, you know, he would be sitting in the automat with Carl Reiner working on jokes for Sid Caesar and Sid yeah. Caesar even would go to the automat. And um, it, yeah, it just makes you miss it. The food sounds really good too. Well, like, yeah, they yeah. talk about how be- they, you know, Often the automats are looked at as sort of the precursor to fast food, but they weren't. What they were the precursor for, though, was this sort of like, ma- like uh, uh, they could keep the prices low because of quantity and quantity. turnover. Yeah. So they would have these sort of central locations where they would make all the pies and all the baked beans and all the breads and everything. There would some cooking would happen in each individual automat, but for the most part, you had this mass production scale, which was why the per unit price could be so low. Um, I'm curious, uh, Lisa Hurwitz is the director. I'm curious what her, uh, connections are to the people who, uh, you know. To Horn and Hardart? Or to Horn and Hardart. There's a little bit of glossing over from stuff that's not exactly doesn't sound like it was a good time. Yeah, like they, they, there's a talk about how there was a moment where in the they 30s, wanted to there unionize. was a strike, and and Horn and Hardart were such a good company that no one wanted to be in a union. And I thought, yeah. okay, maybe there's more to that story. A, I need a little more information. But they do they do <laughs> talk about the fact that that it was that it was the kind of business that people stayed at year after year yes. because like if you fell behind on your mortgage, there would be there was an employee fund where you could get help if it, you needed help. Yeah, you know, um, and there would be like big Christmas things every year for like the employees' kids and yeah. stuff. They 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 make a, they make a point of, of talking about how they did take care of the workers yeah in a good way in a way that companies no longer do right um and but I was I, I needed a little more information yeah, about that that union that, moment I was like eh, there's a, a little more complicated than I bet you're telling us it also doesn't uh, talk very much about what happened after the original people and their kids left the company and everything started being about bad business deals and, you know, poor quality of the places themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, That is also not very much discussed. And the idea of uh, city centers uh, becoming places where poorer and poorer people lived, uh, 
and homeless people began to congregate. And that is also sort of touched on, but never put into a larger context. It was, it's always, it is presented in the context of, and that just killed the business, you know, like, and I don't know enough to know what is left out. Well, that's, I mean, that's a larger conversation about public spaces and about how public spaces function in urban environments where there are unhoused people. And then of course that has, you have to get into the whole larger ramifications of like, well, why are there so many unhoused people? What are the systemic, you know, which is a, a whole other documentary in itself. So, I mean, I think they, they touch upon the idea of like, the policy was always people could hang out as long as they wanted to. We didn't kick people out. And, you know, as the as times changed, that began to be more of a problem. There's also one interviewee in this film who I don't trust as far as I can bowl him. Uh, the bigwig from Starbucks? That is correct. <laughs> yes. Every smiling moment that he's on camera, I think... You may have loved the Automat, but Starbucks is not like that Yeah, I, <laughs> at all. And if that's been your guiding principle, then you have done all the wrong things. It is a, it is a weird <laughs> Bond villain moment where he's talking about how the idea of like food presentation is theater has been his lifelong blah, blah. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> I'm sure the Automat's like, take my name out of your mouth. <laughs> Yeah, so there's that. It's but overall, you know, it's a short, sweet. Uh, I I found film it, and I I I was I I totally enjoyed watching it. And Mel Brooks is like uh, a delight. He steals every <laughs> moment in life that he's in. I think sometimes. Well, it's funny because he keeps telling her how to make the documentary, <laughs> and she'll leave that in, and then just like do the thing that he just said that she should do. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I, I found myself being kind of moved by it. And again, it's this thing that I never experienced firsthand, but right. just knew existed. And hearing people talking about it in such glowing ways, it, it again, it, Anamoya, that's what it gave me. And finally. Medea's Homecoming. Yes. A, Tyler Perry's A Medea Homecoming. Tyler Perry's A Medea Homecoming. Thank you. Um, my new favorite Medea movie. Yes. Uh, and, you're, I've, you're, you're and rap, I have seen them all. Yes, your rap list has been upgraded. I have also seen all the Medea movies, and this is also my favorite. Um, briefly, here's the plot. The grandson of Medea, whom we've never great met. Great grandson. The great grandson of Medea, whom we have never met, is graduated from college. He's the valedictorian of his class. So there is going to be a great family reunion at Medea's place, and... Uh, the great-grandson brings home a male friend. His roommate. And they have an announcement to make. What could it be? Hmm. We, we don't know. No. Um, and then all the family shows up, and the announcement is made, and then another announcement is made, and then more announcements are made, <laughs> and there's, you know, family antics and chaos. And the friend has family of his own who come in from Ireland. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> including his Aunt Agnes. Who is literally the Irish Medea. Yeah. Played by a guy named Brendan O'Carroll. Then a 
popular long-running sitcom called Mrs. Brown's Boys. It is an Irish sitcom. I've never seen it. Me neither. And I didn't know that it was a thing until the day we watched this movie. It's on Netflix. Yes. Uh, is this playing theatrically at all? I believe just Netflix. Okay. Um, and my understanding of how this came to be, of how Agnes Brown uh, from Mrs. Brown's Boys wound up in this movie is that Tyler Perry saw, uh, you know, videos mm-hmm. of this, this guy, Brendan O'Carroll being this character. And he was like, Oh, that's Medea in another country. He should be in the next movie. Hmm. Uh, he gave an interview. Tyler Perry did where he said, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, your race, your ethnicity, your nationality, you have a Medea in your family. <laughs> and I was like, that's, True. Yeah. 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 Um and uh and so here he is. Uh and well I won't spoil it because I, I have a feeling that we might see more of Agnes Brown in f- any future Medea movies that sh- that come along. It's because, entirely possible. Yeah. <laughs> um but first let's talk about uh how hilariously funny this movie is because I laughed and laughed and laughed nonstop uh, throughout. People don't believe me when I tell them that this is a funny movie. Well, here's the thing. You and I, through the course of this podcast, have covered basically all the Tyler Perry movies. Just about. And I think it all becomes a blur because what happens is we are often tasked with reviewing the dramatic output of mm-hmm. Tyler Perry, yes. the non-Medea films. Right. Uh, that quite often, in addition to being sort of like cheaply and hastily and carelessly made, uh, they're often irritatingly preachy and... Occasionally even offensive. E- occasionally even homophobic. And offensive. Yeah. Um, and if they are merely run-of-the-mill boring, then we don't like that. Uh, if they are extravagantly wild, then we have talked about them fairly lovingly uh, for just the fact that they exist and are so insane. Yeah. Um. But we've always but liked Medea. I feel like we've always talked about how much we like Medea, the in character, s- in spite of the fact that some of the Medea films are unfunny and uh, seemingly dashed off. Yes, like for some sort of contractual obligation, or uh, you know, there are times when Tyler Perry has felt to me as though he doesn't care so much about this character anymore, and times that he feels like he does care about this character. Right. I said to Christine, I don't know if it made it into the into the the video or not, but Medea feels like a conversation that Tyler Perry has always been having with Tyler Perry. Hmm. Um, aside from the filmmaking aspect of 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 these of these movies, sure. Um, you know, it, it often feels like you know this character is this man's uh, unhinged, sort of wild id, mm-hmm. like says and does things that he would not do. Right. Um, makes jokes about things that he would not make. Um, but he is that character, and he's making those jokes. Uh, we know a, a person 
in Los Angeles who does drag, uh, sometimes professionally, and then other times works professionally out out of drag. Mm-hmm. In drag, uh, as the character that he portrays, this this person we know uh, says wild, unhinged things. And in person, when you're sitting down to dinner with this guy, he's quiet and shy and doesn't speak a whole lot. Right. So Tyler Perry, doing this same thing, puts on that outfit and becomes uh, someone else. Yeah. And he, and he Uncle has... Uncle Joe, too. And, and as also when he portrays Uncle Joe. Um, the uh, Because Uncle Joe is also Tyler Perry yes. in a lot of prosthetics and, and stuff. Um, and I think more even than when Eddie Murphy has done it, when Martin Lawrence has done it, uh, Medea feels very personal to me. Uh, like a very personal creation to Tyler Perry. Yeah. I know he says he's based it on one or more of his aunts, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, maybe stylistically, but this just feels like I'm telling you things right. about my worldview on some levels, on some days. Yes. You know, some days when I'm feeling wild, here's what I think. It's It's the thing where, like, the ventriloquist the figure will say something shocking or outrageous and the other yeah. is like, what? No, no, oh, no, no. Why would no. you say such That's a thing? The nice yeah. people, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think Medea is a, is a something of a, of a valve for, yeah. for, for Tyler Perry, for sure. Um, and so, uh, then there's the filmmaking. Yes. Which this film feels like the most proficient. Yes. Filmmaking I've ever seen. From Tyler Perry. Like I just went back and reread my review of of the previous Medea film, the 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 funeral one. Yeah, and I talked about how that movie, as with Boo Two and so many other of the previous of the of the recent Medea films, come down to like people sitting in circles and having conversations, right. like this community theater. And I know Medea was born on the stage. Yes, but like this the 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 the, the, the filmic staging of conversations yeah. of people gathering is so often so flat and uninspired in these movies. And this one, like the camera moves. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, but, but here uh, there's a scene in a red lobster. Yes. That is, again, it's a, it's a point the camera at the table and watch people like yell at each other. Uh, it, it it feels alive. Yeah, there's like, cross cutting. Like it's a Hong Sang Soo movie all of a sudden. Like <laughs> Let's not get crazy. No, no, I'm not getting crazy. Okay. Hong Sang Soo points the camera at the table in the in the cafe and people talk for long stretches of time. And you are engaged. And here is what's happening. You are engaged in this red lobster. <laughs> and I am happier with the filmmaking than I have ever been. But Something occurred to me while watching this movie, and it's the fact that uh, the filmmaking has always, I think, been beside the point. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think the filmmaking is him trolling critics. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> like, like he cares so little about what critics think. Yeah. Sometimes that I think he often is like, 
Yeah, we just look one take. One take. <laughs> we'll fix it in the editing. It's like everybody just improv and act and go to the script if you feel like it. Like we might cut. We might do it again, but just I, go. I think. I um, think he's more interested frequently over the course of his career is is more interested in just being the guy in control of his own material yeah. than he is in being a filmmaker per se. You yeah. know, there was one Medea movie he didn't direct and then after that it was all of him yes. all the time. Yes. And I think it and it's not like I'm gonna make this better. It's just like nobody else is going to No one to else make is gonna this. do this but me. And every right. so often, like you could tell, like for Color Girls was the movie where he was definitely like, "This is going to be my awards I'm be, movie. You're going to take me seriously." Here, yeah. But like for the most part, yeah, I don't think he doesn't seem to be that. That's the of you know. I'm sure he's very good with actors. I'm sure like there's a lot of other things that he's very skillful at. But when it comes to like the visual palette of a movie, bottom of his list. His actors keep coming back. Yeah. Like the the core folks, uh, Cassie Davis and Tamala Mann and David Mann, uh, you know, Bam and Cora and Mr. Brown, like mm-hmm. they keep coming back and yeah. they're in his television shows too. Yes. Um, I, uh, I also think after all these years, it's been like 20 years yeah. of Medea practically. Um, I touched on this a little bit with, with Christy. With each passing year, I feel like I know less and less. Does this make sense a little bit? About? Um, As I learn more about this filmmaker and what he's doing, Mm -hmm. I feel like my earlier ideas about him were maybe just all wrong. Mm. Like, as a white audience member, as a white critic, I feel like I have... Early on, I think I came to these films and thought, I know what filmmaking should be like. Why aren't you doing it? How come I'm not served by this? And over the years, I've thought, oh, wait. It doesn't matter if I get what I want from this. Like, it, what, what matters is a filmmaker is talking to himself and to... Uh, the audience he's most interested an in. An audience who, who brings experiences to the filmmaking to the sorry an audience who brings experiences to the film viewing process Mm -hmm. that i don't bring um this is not to say that all black people like (laughs) tyler perry movies by any stretch um because there is there is debate oh yeah and i and i and i do know about that but the assumption that when a when a white person walks into black culture and thinks they know everything they need to know to make a value judgment about the thing they're seeing or experiencing, you should maybe interrogate that a little bit. And over the years, I think Tyler Perry has been teaching me that I don't know half as much as I ever thought I did. Um, Fortunately, uh, this character keeps making me laugh. And... And I want to, st- I want to keep going, <laughs> you know. Um, I understand there are there are layers of a Tyler Perry movie that I'm not going to get, right? Given my background, at the same time, I still feel like it's fair for me to point out that oh, the apartment in Nobody's Fool is completely terribly decorated and badly lit. Well, that's not the same thing. <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about, though. I know, but I'm just saying. I don't think we. I don't. I think there are there are levels of aesthetic and of you know. 
discourse and narrative of these films that are that are outside of our sphere of influence, but at the same time that as critics, there are sort of universal traits of good or bad filmmaking that we're still allowed to point out. Yeah, I'm not talking about bad lighting. Okay. <laughs> I'm All talking right. about, and there's been plenty of that. <laughs> what I'm talking about is the specifics of Medea and the world that Tyler Perry is creating around sure, her sure. versus the universal stuff that, you know, that I can understand. I learn more about the specifics and the more I learn about them, the more I think, oh, wait, you thought you were down. Gotcha. You never were. <laughs> you, you have to keep learning. Right. And even broad, lowbrow comedy in the world, if it's done well and with energy and, and, and good jokes. Yeah. Can be about. Will teach you. Yeah. Uh, Something else. So thank you, Tyler Perry. <laughs> because I just, I adore this character and, and I want, I don't want him to get bored. I don't want him to, and if he is feeling bored, I don't want him to make a, a Medea movie. I've seen enough of the, of the, the Medea movies where I, he feels like he's bored with the character. Witness production. This movie feels like he's like firing on all cylinders. Yeah. And there is a sequence. There's a flashback sequence in this movie. <laughs> That I was cr crying. It's, it's it, so it's, it's wild. It's maybe the most elaborate piece of filmmaking <laughs> he's ever done. And it's great. And then there are the end credits. Yes. But hang on. Before we get into that. I which wanna... I will not spoil, but you need oh, to stick see around for those. Them. For sure. Yeah. No. One of the things I think what's so great about this movie is we've talked about this over the years where because kids were watching the movie he was trying to dial oh, down oh, some oh, of Medea's real oh, yeah. like the guns and the the, the marijuana weed and the profanity and, yeah and and watching boo 2 and the jesus as yes, well absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah watching boo 2 was like watching the airline version of the movie yeah. like there were moments you could tell that they had roughly ADR'd uh -huh. Medea from saying a bad swear to no longer saying it yeah and with this Netflix deal we have R-rated Medea yeah I feel like Tyler Perry's like yeah. people are gonna watch this and I'm not selling <laughs> tickets so it, all bets are off the gun's back the weed is back the profanity is back the talking about how how like you know she was really worried about the church uh, something happening because they might have burned down the liquor store next door. Right. Yeah. I'm like, okay, this is this is full <laughs> on Medea again, and I'm here for it. Uh, yeah, I la I laughed and laughed. It's very funny. I'll watch it again. Yeah. I laughed and laughed. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, even if even if you think that you are too cool for Tyler Perry and too cool for Medea and whatever, like. You can only say that after you watch a Medea Homecoming. <laughs> I used to love Medea's Big Happy Family the best. Yeah, it's uh, now I, second. I love this one the best. Yeah, now. you know, I'll never, I'll never tire of Tiana uh, Taylor mm. in that film. But um, this is raucously funny. Yeah, yeah. And and he said on more than one occasion, he's like. Witness Protection was supposed to be the last Medea movie, and then Funeral was going to be the last Medea movie. Yeah. But I, I, this feels like somebody who is 
excited to do this again. Yeah. And so I hope we get more of this like this. If they're not going to be in theaters anymore, if they're only going to be on Netflix and they're going to be this, you know, R-rated and wild. And liberated. Please, I'll take one a year. Yeah. yeah just <laughs> happily, here, happily. Here for that. <laughs> um, we have a couple letters. Do we? Yeah. My, Where are my, they? My streaming pick this week uh, is Stop Loss. It's the movie I kept thinking about while I was watching Dog. You can rent right. it on... Uh, on Amazon and iTunes and in all the places. And I believe there's also a Blu-ray of it. So yeah, it's, uh, uh it was Kim Pierce's second film after, uh, Boys Don't Cry, um, Ryan Phillippe and Abby Cornish, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Timothy Oliphant. Highly recommend. And then go listen to the interview that Daniel and I did with her on a film and a movie where we talked about, um, how that, how Stop Loss was influenced by the Battle of Algiers. Oh, you want me to... Okay, here are Let letters. Now, please. Yes. Jay says, uh, regarding Airdal, I was a fan of Joe Odagiri in the late 2000s. He plays the doll maker mm. in Airdal. So I recall that that film had a U.S. release back in 2009, 2010, at least. It was in Landmark Theaters in San Francisco. I missed out on it, so I'm glad to see it available now. It was interesting about that. They are billing it as the first U.S. official proper release of this film, uh, yeah, so I wonder what it might have been the a 2009 thing, thing was. It might have been the thing where, like, an individual theater curated, like, a series or Maybe. something. Uh, but I don't as, know. Yeah, I, you know, sometimes if they'll say a film is getting its first U.S. release, it doesn't mean that it hasn't previously screened here, like festivals or museums right. or whatever. And sometimes even private theaters will book a film that isn't otherwise hmm. in release in the U.S. Uh, continuing, I totally agree with Alonzo about how physical media matters. It's especially painful if the films you want are overseas, mm, shipping costs, yeah. lack English subtitles. And even if you find what you're looking for, it may only be available in a different DVD or Blu-ray region than yours. Worse, it might only be available as a VCD, and the quality is horrible, <laughs> which I had to do when Miramax bought rights to old Asian films, but held them and never released them in the mm. late 2000s, 2010s. Maybe because my tastes for films are not Hollywood-centric, I think many of the issues I faced looking for films I wanted to watch exist today as well, since the films I wanted to watch, since the films I want to watch today may be streaming, but they can't be streamed in the U.S. due to regional rights purposes or whatever. I see this all the time in Netflix, where I Google the film and Google tells me it's in Netflix, but it's Netflix Taiwan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the Enigma of Love, a romantic drama with Maggie Chung from 1993. And I have no access to it because I am not in Taiwan. Yep. I know. Mm -hmm. I know. It's a thing. Tony says, regarding the new film version of Macbeth, I have to admit that as much as I admired the production elements and many of the performances, I was a bit let down by the movie. It didn't take long for me to realize why. I'm too familiar with the source material. Hmm. I'm a high school English teacher. I've taught this particular play more than any other text in my nearly 20-year career. I know it backwards and forwards. I know these characters, their motivations, their intentions. So when I watched the film version, there were so many cuts to the text that it robbed many of the characters of their most important moments. This is particularly true with Lady Macbeth. McDormand is great in the role, but the cuts and the scenes between her and Denzel Washington are exactly the ones that illustrate why she goes crazy at the end. This is just one of a number of problems I have with the adaptation. 
and I don't want to bore you with what would basically be a graduate-level thesis on this particular adaptation, <laughs> which I think is a wonderful film, but not a good Macbeth film, if that makes any sense. Uh, is a really long, this is a really long way of asking the following. Has there ever been a movie or television adaptation that you haven't liked because you were too close to the source material? Huh. Um, oh, yeah, I know. Off the top of my head, I know. What? Harriet the Spy. Oh. Now, mind you, I read Harriet the Spy as a child in the 1970s, and I read it over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. I just kept reading it and rereading it. It was the the primary document of my childhood. <laughs> and then in the 90s, when I was 33, yeah. the film version came out with... Uh, Michelle Trachtenberg. Michelle Trachtenberg and Rosie O'Donnell. And I thought, well, that was sweet. <laughs> Not my Harriet. Not my Harriet the Spy, but that was sweet. <laughs> it was lovely. You know, um, currently, here's a backwards version of this. Uh, the film The Poseidon Adventure, which we've talked about many, many times. <laughs> I uh, have seen it many, many, many times, like more perhaps than any other film. Uh and you, Alonzo, gave me a vintage first pressing hardcover edition of the of the book on which it is based. Oh my god. <laughs> Paul Gallico wrote that book when he was about 67, 68 years old. Huh. It came out in 1969. It was not a huge success. Paul Gallico was born in the at the turn of the 20th century. Mm. It is a book that is filled with the attitudes of a man who has grown up in the 20th century. A white man. Woo! So many things Yikes. in this book that are... Uh, I got, uh, <laughs> you don't want to know some of the stuff that goes on in this book. That thankfully uh, are not in the film. Good thing. Um, things that, if they were in the film, you'd look at it today and go, oh. <laughs> I mean, shockingly offensive things. Right. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, adaptations. What a what a what a what a what an experience they are sometimes. Yeah, I, you know, I always think about how like back to back in the eighties we had the uh, World According to Garp and the Hotel New Hampshire, yeah. which were both based on John Irving novels, and Garp kind of plays around with some of the details of the plot, but I think still kind of captures the tone of the book, whereas Hotel New Hampshire rather slavishly follows the plot and misses the tone entirely. Um, there's also one of the Harry Potter movies, which weirdly enough, like those, those movies became so obsessive about like, they had, there was such a rabid fan base for the books and the people, those people wanted to make sure every single thing got into the movie. But there was one where a big sub flashback subplot about relationships between characters, like, I, I guess like his parents and their friends and stuff right. got left out of one of the movies and it totally undid like a major subplot about one of the characters that emerges. And I just remember thinking, huh, of all the things to leave out, why that? But you know, whatever. Yeah. And then finally from Holly, uh, she says, I don't know if I'm alone in this, uh, but I went into watching marry me. Very open to being entertained by it and was not. Hmm. 
about a third of the way in, and I realized why. It had real incel energy to me that felt like an extension of its graphic novel source material. Oh, here we are again talking about adaptations. <laughs> like, I found myself encouraging Jennifer Lopez to get back with her cheating ex. <laughs> because that was a simple problem to deal with versus the weird energy Owen Wilson was giving off. Where he told her the Grammys are, are BS while pushing kids to compete in math league competitions that traumatize them. And undermining her success and fame and making her feel bad for having staff and money and turning up at her celebratory Grammys party to break up with her. Like, sorry, this is not someone Jennifer Lopez deserves. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny because I read this entirely differently. Yeah, I mean, I I can see where there's a read of this movie where he's giving strong, but I'm a nice guy energy. But uh, I I, I hear what you're saying. That didn't leap out at me, but, you know. I could I like could, my my experience of this was completely the opposite of that. Yeah, but I could. So I, could, not, I guess I just have to go back and watch it again, perhaps. which I would kind of happily do. I mean, I was I liked it so much that I sure you know I'm willing to be uh, have it ruined for I'm you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for sharing that. That's a that's a uh, you, What's you that? raise a valid the line in that song. Your life's too good to be true. I think I'll ruin it for you. <laughs> oh, uh, it's a dream for, kitchen. Oh, uh, late. 80s, early 90s, Frasier Chorus, Frasier Chorus song called yeah. Dream Kitchen. Uh, and that's as much as I care to talk about it. <laughs> no, I mean, the song, not Marry Me. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I just hadn't thought about it like that. Like like, like he was negging her the whole time. Yeah, like, like uh, it didn't feel that way I, to, I, me. to me. It felt like it was like he was sort of trying to be a grounding influence, but I could see where also it's like, yeah, he's just being a wet blanket. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. Well, now I probably have to go back and look Makes at you think. Yeah. Uh, we're done. The end. Awesome. End, end of podcast. Well, everybody, thank you for your patience. We did take a couple of weeks away yeah. there, but uh, it's lovely to have you back. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash day. We never went away there. We were, you know, we were bringing all kinds of content. Yes, we were. Uh, all L- the content. LKTV, a podcast about television. Uh, Linoleum Knife and Fork, a food podcast hosted by two film critics. Linoleum Nights, where we just talk about anything and everything um it's funny a lot of people on twitter talking about fork episodes of late and i i I wonder if people see oh linoleum cast well i listen to the that podcast i don't hear anything about food well it's well well, usually we talk about food on this show too we do but if you really (laughs) want to hear us talk about food it's happening over at patreon patreon.com slash linoleum knife um please check out the other podcast that i co-host uh maximum film on the maximum fun network breakfast all day with christy lemire on uh as a podcast and on youtube and deck the hallmark i've been popping in once a week brand and i are doing the 25 weeks of christmas where i'm introducing him to classics and he is forcing me to watch or rewatch movies that came out after 1992 so you can imagine who's got the better list uh <laughs> and um yeah thank you for uh thanks to blue for our wonderful theme music uh subscribe to our show on apple podcasts leave us a five-star review we will read it on the show if you do you can also leave positive feedback in the many places that we stream including uh stitcher radio the lounge.com google play amazon music um uh, Castbox, Podbean, and the like. Uh, you can follow us at LinoleumCast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and drop us a line at linoleumpodcast at gmail.com. We are planning an all letters episode soon to get caught up on that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, welcome back, everybody. It's uh, it's it's lovely to, to, to be heard by you. Um, until next time. Goodbye. <laughs>